I I never do it. Really? I'll do it. No, because I'm all, no. You always have the other <laughs> person, the other person. Do it. Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. In 1992, Richard Ross, working on behalf of Lifeway Christian Resources, developed the True Love Waits campaign. By 1994, more than 100,000 American teenagers had signed commitment cards promising to wait to have sex until after marriage. In 1996, the Silver Ring Thing project encouraged teenagers to wear rings as a symbol of their purity pledge, garnering the coveted Jonas Brothers endorsement when the group adopted a set of silver bands. Then in 1998, the first purity ball was created by Randy and Lisa Wilson, the parents of five daughters. At these prom-like events, mostly teenage girls pledged to their fathers to maintain their virginity until marriage, and fathers pledged to guide their daughters by walking with honor through a culture of chaos and not watching porn. Ballerinas introduced a cross onto the dance floor, and then fathers and daughters processed under two raised swords for the girl to lay a white rose at the foot of the cross as her father prayed over her. The following decade saw thousands of purity balls hosted across the United States, and the movement even spread into the United Kingdom. George W. Bush helped allocate federal money to fund the Silver Ring thing. Money that was later withdrawn, by the way, when the American Civil Liberties Union sued over the funding's violation of the separation of church and state. Critics argued that purity culture set teenagers up for early pregnancy since the pledge meant they wouldn't be prepared with contraceptives should they impulsively decide to have sex. A study published in the journal Pediatrics in 2009 found that 82% of purity pledgers denied having ever made a pledge five years later. They had just as much vaginal, oral, and anal intercourse as peers who hadn't pledged and just as many STDs. Open up your divinely inspired puberty textbooks to chapter one. Today on Occult Confessions, Christian Sex Education. And uh, I am joined by your uh, TA, Olivia Litterall, Grand Master of the Order, Grand Master TA of Christian Sex Education. <laughs> um, yep, that's me. That's you, yeah. You've um, been... Rob makes me do all the TA. <laughs> she'll, be, she'll be grading Christian all your quizzes. Work, yeah, I just... <laughs> Handling the study group. Because, you know, I'm not going out and having sex because I, I am right. part of the You've the got purity. that silver ring on your thing. I will say the ritual of it was kind of fun. Those swords, you like that? Yeah, I'd probably do it. <laughs> Just for the swords? Yeah. I'm also <laughs> willing to dress up for any ball situation. Oh, so you like the gown. Yeah, it's like, I didn't want to go to prom. I just wanted to dress up. <laughs> My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson. I am your supreme hierophant for today's festivities. Uh, and Olivia is, uh, she's wearing, she, actually, Olivia wore a gown today for, for this. Yeah. She was ready. It's, um, yeah. How many it's silver intense. rings do you have on right now? Uh, <laughs> I actually have two on, which <laughs> yes, so. is kind of funny. <laughs> You're set. But <clears throat> Let's pledge it out. We, the members of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Now, before we open up that order of confessors today, Olivia, I do want to give a little tribute uh, to Dr. Catherine Schuler, uh, one of my uh, grad school mentors, 
a woman who taught me pretty much everything I know about research. Uh, Catherine passed recently uh, from uh, after a year-long battle with cancer. Uh, I remember uh, my first semester of grad school, uh, I went into her class. She taught the craft, basically the craft of research, like your, your weed-out course for grad mm-hmm. students. Uh, and and you write this 20-page paper, which is standard for grad students. You're just writing 20-page papers all the time. And you, you're writing your first big research paper uh, for Dr. Schuler. And, uh, <laughs> I you know, I, I sweat over this paper. I wrote about Daniel Dunglass Hume and, you know, spiritualist seances and all this stuff. And I compared him to a shaman, all this sort of, whatever, fancy performance studies scholarship and Catherine turns this thing back back to me, and it's covered in red ink. It's it's you know I'm used to being this you know, like humanities gold star student, and <laughs> and she's like, nope, you didn't work hard enough on this. Uh, and I went to the I ended up at the Library of Congress where I actually ran into Catherine doing her own research uh, to pile up more primary sources. And that's what Catherine was all about: more primary sources, more primary sources. So, a lot of what you hear on the show. I mean, you hear today. I'm going to be, you know, just banging my head through a bunch of Christian sex ed manuals. That that focus on analyzing primary research, uh, that very much comes from from Catherine Schuler. Uh, so all our love, Catherine, uh, and happy passing. Uh, all right, Olivia, open up that order of confessors. It's open. I'm opening it. Open, open, open. Look at that. The door is open. I, I, ne- I was unsure when it would stop. I didn't know what was going on, to be honest. <laughs> We're in a closet, <laughs> and i it's throwing me off. I'm like... We're in a, an acoustically advantageous space. No, yeah, I just feel like I'm a little, <laughs> a little crazy in the You're closet. Used to the theater, yeah. Crazy in the closet. Finals week here at uh, Chesapeake College. We've got too many kids running around. They're going to interrupt our sex talk. Can't have that. Can't have that. We want to welcome Catherine L. Uh, and J.H.Y. Uh, also the return of Ryan XC, Felicia T., and a pledge bump from Chandra L., also, we got a lovely review from Katie Lane 13, who says, because of this podcast, I have developed a greater understanding of who I am spiritually. This is not the first time I've heard that, but that's a lot of uh, responsibility, Olivia, don't you think? Yeah. I mean... Yeah, it is. Yeah, when you think <laughs> when you about point it. it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I do take that seriously. Olivia takes that seriously. All the team takes that seriously. I mean, we don't always take our subjects seriously. But we're not going to say anything to you that we don't stand behind. I, I know for a fact, Olivia, you'll, she'll vouch for this. Olivia will sometimes say things, then she'll come back to me and be like, Rob, I'm not so sure <laughs> about that. Because we do. It's We take the responsibility yeah. seriously to be honest about our perspective, about the research, and not to tell a bunch of bullshit. Because I, I do think people are looking for some spiritual insight from the history of, of these topics. And uh, thank you, Katie Lane, for reminding us of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, close this up, Olivia. It's closing. I'm closing it. It's time for it. It's closing time. Closing the closet door. <laughs> Let me put a little postscript on that, actually. All them Spotify friends sharing their uh, top podcast. That's always nice. We appreciate that. And you share it, and people see it, and it brings more people to the show, and, and that's just really nice. That happens this time of year. I call it spotify miss. <laughs> And also, I think just like low key, like just blows our minds still yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. we we never re- we don't realize till the end of the year really. I mean, I track the numbers, but we don't realize till the end of the year how many people are you know are are hardcore fans. Like on a personal level, like yeah. here, like seeing how many hours one person listened to us <laughs> right. is like it makes you kind of sit there and really think about what you've said. <laughs> Again, a lot of responsibility. This is a day where we honor. 
<laughs> the burden of our responsibility here <laughs> by talking about sex. So, Olivia, you're gonna. Pre- I'm starting this off on a light note. I think. Yeah. Because you're gonna get. You're gonna get. I'm gonna get you mad today. I'm sure, but what else is kind of new? Perhaps the strangest book I came across in my research on contemporary Christian attitudes towards sex was Dr. Ed Wheat's Intended for Pleasure, colon, Sex Technique and Sexual Fulfillment in Christian Marriage, which was first published in 1977. Wheat is a medical doctor, and when young couples came to him requesting blood tests before their wedding, which used to be required by state law, by the way, Wheat subjected them to a full sequence of pre-marriage counseling sessions. Wait, you had to get a blood... Wait, hold on. Yeah. Why did you have to get a blood test? Well, so this is a... There, there are a variety of misconceptions around this. Um, some people thought that it had something to do with genetics, but it was actually about STDs. It was a way for... Like, say we're getting married. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I've got, you know, the syphilis or the herpes or God something. Knows. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, maybe we're good Christians or, or we're sort of good Christians. We haven't had sex or we haven't had sex a lot. Right. And then here I come with my syphilis. Right. But now you won't be surprised because we got a blood test. <laughs> we're still going to get married, but I'm not surprised. Well, now. we don't. That You could back out, I guess, is okay, the yeah, idea. Yeah, like, yeah. once we get the blood test, you could be like, oh, Rob, that's syphilis. When did that stop? Uh, very recently. So uh, Montana was the last state to put an end to the practice, and that was in 2019. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's so, I mean, like, I guess that's not, like, bad, but that's just so weird. I don't know if, I, I don't have the exact dates on this, but I bet our parents got blood tests. Oh, for their... I'm going to text my mom and yeah, ask, ask her, her later. She... She's, she's not going to remember. Probably not. <laughs> she's going to but... be like, Olivia, that was 25, <laughs> was 26 ago. <laughs> years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so FYI. Anyhow, so, but here's the thing. So you're coming for a medical thing that you just need to get your marriage license. And this guy says, hold your roll because before I give you that blood test, or at least your results, you have to sit for marriage counseling sessions with me, Dr. Wheat. Can you imagine? I think that they should get the results first and then do the counseling. (laughs) So Wheat made his soon to be married patients read his book. Uh, and listen to his CD. <laughs> Please listen to my <laughs> Yes. He's oh like God. Dr. Oz or something. And then he gave them a brief outline of his 11 biblical principles. Imagine this. That's to brief. help ensure a happy marriage. This is 77. So you could be like a Wiccan or something coming in. And he's like, nope, we got to talk about this. Okay. So if you're thinking uh, that this sounds like a whole lot of effort just to get a blood test, I want you to listen to some of his principles. First and foremost, couples must set aside at least a few weeks for a honeymoon, enough time for the husband to learn how to please his wife sexually. Takes two weeks, he says. They should take a break from... I'm, I'm, I, I don't disagree with this stuff, by the way. I, I do think that's good. Sure. They should take a break from media for at least two hours every day to spend uninterrupted time together. That's getting harder and harder to do. Uh, Never go to bed angry. All right. And set aside time for Bible study each day. I know you're doing that, Olivia, with with Ryan. Yep, every day. And the wife should submit herself to her husband, who will be the spiritual leader of their home. Am I right? Am I right, Olivia? Amen. (laughs) God bless. So... So Wheat's book is a strange blend of progressive attitudes toward female pleasure and fundamentalist attitudes toward gender roles. And it assumes the couple in question has never attempted sex before. 
He advises how the wife, with or without her partner's help, can stretch her hymen to make the first experience relatively painless. That's kind of nice. And counsels the husband that his first orgasm might come quickly, but that he should enjoy helping his wife to achieve her own orgasm regardless of how fast he finishes. I mean... That's okay. a real amen sure. there. Yeah, that yeah. is a non-sarcastic right. amen. That's some doctor. Good doctor yeah. advice. <laughs> In many ways. I mean, you don't expect that from your doctor. Hey, man. Uh, so when you have sex the first time, you're going to come real fast. But here's the thing. Don't let that vagina flap in the wind. It's Get on in there. Okay. Yeah, keep up. Keep at it. Yeah. In many ways, Dr. Wheat typifies the idiosyncrasies and eccentricities of Christian sex education. Christianity is a big tent, and there's room for many viewpoints under that tent on many issues, but few issues garner as much attention as sex. Sexual morality, after all, is something Christians have fought over since the Church Fathers and continue to fight over to this day. It is also the subject on which Christians, particularly conservatives, are most apt to conflict with mainstream cultural values. The conservative Christian approach is what undergirds the Wilson's purity balls and the silver ring thing. The more liberal approach shares conservatives' attitudes toward adultery and marriage, but veers off in a very different direction on some of Christianity's more culturally sensitive or insensitive views on homosexuality, gender roles, premarital sex, masturbation, and pornography. I'm going to try to be as woke as possible today, friends, gender-wise, but bear in mind, this is all primary research. Which is not woke. Which, yes, uh, is distinctly... Well, it's self-consciously anti-woke, you know? Okay. I suppose the word woke is itself passe, but... uh, Anyhow. What does it even mean anymore? Because I, uh, I feel like everyone just throws it around. Yeah, corporations are woke now, and yeah, they, it's like I don't point. know if woke means like fact or conspiracy anymore. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like people yeah. are like, they just throw it around anyway. Yeah, I hear you. So let's start with the conservatives. Since those are the ideas uh, that uh, my listeners, our listeners, are probably most familiar with, a great spokesperson for the conservative view of sex is Dr. Julie Slattery. For the most part, Slattery, a professional psychologist and founder of Authentic Intimacy, uh, she gets on my nerves. But before I explain why, I want to highlight some points of agreement. Slattery says that casual sex can be spiritually and emotionally damaging. I'm open to that idea. While many in our culture don't want to believe this, I think there's ample evidence that this is true. Toxic boyfriends, right? Sure. She also said, or girlfriends, she also says that the damage is by no means irredeemable and that everyone is in some way damaged or broken. Yup, I got you again. I'm with you. Although I am less inclined to interpret our brokenness through the obviously mythological fall of Adam and Eve, I, I get the idea. It's true. Everyone's hurting. Finally, she says that sex is a spiritual exercise and can serve as a metaphor for spiritual things. The Rosicrucians and a long tradition of Hermeticists have reached the same conclusion by different means, and it's one of my favorite divine mysteries in the long history of occultism. I think it's important to note these points of agreement because I'm not entirely hostile to the Christian critique of modern culture's propensity to characterize sex as a kind of super-awesome bodily function. Sex is emotional. Humans need intimacy, and human bodies are not objects, although it's fine to appreciate and enjoy them for their sexual appeal. Am I, do I sound yep, like you're an on it. You're woke. old scoldy man here? Okay. I'm not older scoldy then. Not older scoldy. <laughs> I mean, there are some, you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's extreme liberal standpoints that would say, no, I, 
Sex is nothing. <laughs> it's just what I do. Occasionally. It's just it's not who I am. No, it's just it's Tuesday and Thursday night. Yeah. <laughs> the trouble with Slattery's argument, here we go, this is what we're all here for, starts early on when she tells us that we are living in a uniquely sinful culture characterized by moral relativism. The product, she says, of a rise of postmodernism, or the rise, I should say. While post, you remember this from Western theater? Sure. Okay. While postmodern philosophy has had a great impact on academic discourse and art, it's important to note that shifts toward more permissive attitudes on sex and gender have been isolated from other moral questions, in Slattery's mind anyway, like murder, theft, human trafficking, child abuse, domestic violence, sexual assault, mail fraud, insider trading, embezzlement, and tax evasion. Follow me here. So, if we're saying postmodernism has resulted in moral relativism and this loosey-goosey attitude and anything goes, um, it, <laughs> so yes, sex has certainly changed and our conversations about sex have changed, but not our conversations about mail fraud. That's, that's still a crime. Yeah. Embezzlement, still a crime. Murder. We're not like, yeah, it's okay to murder people sometimes if you're really feeling it. Yeah, well, I guess you get into crime documentary, like the stuff like the, you know, the Ted Bundy being played by Zac Efron, and then right, it gets right. a little sketchy. But yeah, I for the most part, yes. We can all agree serial yeah. killers are against Murder, the law. Yeah. The only, yeah, you're yes. a psychopath if you think it's okay. So this moral relativism that she's talking about is pretty isolated. It's just sexual relativism. It's not applying to all of our other moral standards. Even then, people have always been freaks it's just in secret mm, that's true that's true sex is apparently particularly vulnerable to the advent of postmodernism in ways that other laws are not and this suggests that the culture has had motive or reason to change its perspective on sex whereas it has had less cause to do so for tax cheaters and serial murderers and olivia i think makes good point here that what we're really talking about is not people having sex in new ways so much as being more open about it maybe yeah mm, yeah like the Victorians, they were doing some crazy shit behind Ooh, closed doors. Yeah, 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 yeah. Postmodernism's main questions have to do with modernism's earlier effort to identify and define universal systems for understanding reality. Marxism tried to define the universal system as the economy, psychoanalysis called it our subconscious. Both were modernist, not postmodernist. But the postmodernist says, well, culture isn't all about money any more than it is all about our repressed desires. It's a little of both, and it's a whole lot more. Culture's complicated. So no single aspect of reality is totalizing. And in that way, we have to work toward agreement on the nature of existence and morality while understanding that we have a very incomplete picture of how everything works together. This is the wildly controversial, but pretty damn reasonable theory that Slattery is attacking here and that we actually see attacked from all angles in conservative media. Christianity is certainly not free from debates we might call postmodern, by the way. Within Christianity, there are intense debates on a variety of moral questions, from contraception to the death penalty, uh, and so we have to be flexible in our conclusions, right? Some Christians are like, go ahead, throw that switch. Others are like, the death penalty is a sin. Some are like, Catholics are like, contraception is a sin, and Protestants are like, no, 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 that's cool. Okay. As long as you're with your wife. Uh... 
So to be flexible is not to succumb to total relativism. You've still got to do your stock trading with the same information the rest of us have, no matter your religious convictions, and keep your pyramid schemes out of people's mailboxes. There are still the law. We are a nation of laws, uh, and people can still have a moral compass. But our attitudes may reasonably shift on the meaning of certain texts or the logic of certain ethical principles. While it may be obviously wrong to intentionally harm a child, it can be less obvious what it means to raise your child right. There's room to disagree, right? What is discipline? What is harmful discipline? What is helpful discipline? Mm -hmm. All these parenting questions. Anyway, so take that, Slattery. It's also strange to label our age particularly sinful, given the libertinism of the Restoration Era in Britain, or pretty much the whole Enlightenment in Europe, or any of the wild hijinks of the Roman Empire, or yeah. even, to be honest, the medieval Vatican, Olivia, am I right? Depending on yeah. who the Pope uh, was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you love those Borgias, right? Yeah, those were wild times. We always like to think we're in uniquely trying times or that we're uniquely persecuted, but it's just a story we tell ourselves to harden us in our convictions and is not especially helpful to drawing smart conclusions. Christian humility, as Slatter yourself recognizes, requires that we refuse to speak for God or imagine that we have somehow perfectly understood or enacted God's plan for us. Christian humility, and to my mind, true spirituality, requires holding open the possibility that we have misunderstood God and need to perpetually go deeper in our quest for truth. All right, that's my introduction. I haven't even gotten to sex oh, yet. Oh, Lord above. Okay. <laughs> in her 2018 book, 2018. Oh. 2018. Okay. I'm also very intentionally picking women here, because naturally this conversation is not going to be often in a woman's favor. In her 2018 book, God's Design and Why It Matters, colon, Rethinking Sexuality, which, by the way, I regret to inform you, the Austin Central Library no longer carries since my copy has come to me by way of their collection. Not that I stole it. I bought it fair and square. But it has clearly been abandoned by the Austin Central Library. Slattery makes reference to a variety of sexual sins plaguing humanity. All right, Slattery, here we go. You're not going to be surprised by these. Three main culprits are... Say it with me now. Premarital sex. Homosexuality. Can you guess the last one? Oh, uh, I don't know. Big sexual sin that everybody does because they have the internet. Uh, porn? Porn, yes. Oh. Pornography. I, I was going to go to the dark web for a second there. I was going to go real, like, when you Q-Anon. said the internet, I was like, uh. Not, not a sin against occult confessions. Was, <laughs> <laughs> trafficking, yikes. I was like, I don't know where Whoa, we're going. Not everybody. Anyway. Sorry. Uh, in the cases of premarital sex and homosexuality, Slattery runs herself into a wall with a few glaring self-contradictions. She cites Genesis. Very popular uh, line from Genesis. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. You know this line? Ugh. Right. <laughs> Be fruitful and multiply is also in there. Our gender, sexuality, and anatomy, she says, are part of God's plan. God had given us sexual instincts in order for us to express those feelings in the confines of marriage. It's important here to emphasize that from Slattery's perspective, God intended for us to be naturally inclined to sex. So far, so good seeing as the vast majority of us do like sex a whole lot. I'm not really disagreeing with her here. Yes, I agree. God made us for sex. It's a weird compulsion that we all have, if not. Right. But this is also where... She, so this is... When she, once she makes this point, though, everything else she's going to say is going to 
jam up against this. So she worries about the number of Christians who are what she calls sexual atheists, Christians who ignore doctrinal prohibitions around sex because they don't match wider cultural values. They masturbate. They have sex with their boyfriends or girlfriends. Notice I didn't say husband or wife. And they think that gay people are okay. 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 <laughs> Wait, so, okay. So that's that's sexual atheists. So they're calling themselves Christian, but then oh, okay, they have... Oh, okay, I see. A, they I was the, like, where's the atheist? Okay, got they it. They have a gay it. friend. Got it. And, you know, they have sex with their girlfriend, and uh, they masturbate sometimes. Sexual atheist. But they go to church on Sunday. Isn't that just being... Sinful. Like, why is there a whole new term? Okay, okay yeah. Okay, <laughs> anyway. It's fun to make new terms. I get it. I get it. But I'm like, she's not like reinventing the concept no, no, of yeah. sin. She's just drudging it up into 2018. <laughs> what if, even for one week, you surrendered every sexual thought, she says, every feeling and behavior to the absolute lordship of Christ? What if everything you said, watched, and thought was filtered through the what would Jesus do grid? I have a really easy answer for you, Slattery. Jesus wouldn't have sex. Because Jesus didn't have sex. <laughs> you can't filter your sexual feelings through celibate Jesus. Am I wrong? No, yeah. And I mean, it, I guess if you're reading Dan Brown, it gets complicated, but... Sure, sure. <laughs> she didn't count for... The basic principle. Most people agree that Jesus did not get married. Jesus did right. not have a partner. Therefore, Jesus was celibate. So the what would Jesus do grid falls apart when we get to the sex, I believe. Uh, yeah. See what I mean? Yeah, but also, who wants to... I don't even know if like a... a, like a Full Christian, a not atheist Christian, mm -hmm. wants to do that. Go through that grid? Yeah, like to just, I don't know. Oh, we're talking about some Catholic priests here. But Slattery isn't asking for celibacy. She's already channeled Genesis to tell us we were made to join our flesh together, to be fruitful, to multiply. Her argument crashes into itself right here. This is, in my opinion, the simmering contradiction at the heart of almost all Christian sexual ethics. A good Christian, Slattery says, gives up all sexual longings that are outside of God's design for them. She acknowledges that this seems unfair to gay men, for example, and lesbians, since she's already marked all of their attractions as outside of God's design. But gay people should feel better, because God actually asks everyone to be self-denying. Resisting strong temptations and desires. Married couples, she says, remain faithful when sex isn't possible or pleasurable, just as single people can't have sex until they're married. But this obviously isn't even remotely comparable to sacrificing your sexual desires in total for your entire lifetime. I am going to, by the way, argue with all the stuff about single people and, and married people, but... She's saying, you know, the single person has to wait to have sex. The married person has to wait to have sex. Come on, gay people. You don't sa make sacrifices. But for all those other people, they do get to have sex in this lifetime. Do you see? So it's not really the same. Oh, my God. It's sort of like, it's like, I don't know. Like, like I, I, here, here comes this. A large dog and she's like oh rob make a sacrifice for god let the dog step on you i'm like oh man that hurt that dog stepped on me and then the, the gay person comes up behind me and she's like okay an elephant's gonna step on you it's the same though right it's the same 
Anyway, I don't know if that's an app metaphor. I just made I that just up on the spot. I just don't know what kind of privileged life this woman is leading. A Christian one. There is <laughs> clear and obvious inequity in the way conservative Christians moralize against homosexual desire. Furthermore, if sex is a grand spiritual metaphor and exercise based in deep emotional intimacy and not a purely procreative act, then why can't gay men and lesbians enjoy the same benefits from their sexual desires for their, with their partner than any other human being of the same gender? Right. Right? Unless it's all just about making kids. Well, then that goes back to the Catholic Church way back when, where it was just like, if it's if you're having sex and not reproducing, then it's a sin. It don't matter if you're straight or married or yeah. anything. Even that natural family planning. No planning. No. No planning at all. But I mean, I, I think to a large extent, this is because we've stepped away from this idea. This is what's made, even within religious circles, gay people, you know, have been accepted. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying across the board or even widely, but in, in American culture, they've been widely legalized and accepted, I, I think. I think the majority of the American population, even with our strong Protestant roots, have accepted gay people. Um and I think this is part of the reason, like when you logically work through this problem, what is sex really for? Mm. Anyhow, <clears throat> the contradiction persists in a new guise when she talks about masturbation and premarital sex. So let's talk about them heterosexuals now. This includes can include gay people as well, of course, but Slattery recognizes that teenage sexual desire is often an earth shattering force of nature and wonders why God would give 13 year olds what? these desires when they lack the emotional maturity to marry for at least another decade i don't remember it being that intense earth shattering i mean it's it messes you up i mean everything about puberty messes you up. i don't know i was like in art class i was chilling (laughs) you were pretty chill at 13 (laughs) (laughs) 13 is rough yeah uh <laughs> but I mean, yeah, people, you you suddenly find yourself motivated to do a thing that had never crossed your mind for 13, 13 years is a long time for it never to cross your mind that you should be doing things sure. with these other people. Sure. Yeah. So it's a big change. She says, because of sexual desire, a young man will suspend his pursuit of the perfect job to pursue a woman. <laughs> Wait, what? He was going to get the perfect job, but then. 13 year olds. Fuck my career. He met Mackenzie. I need a wife. Yeah, I'm not getting a job. Um, I mean, you're like 18 now, 18, 19. Oh, okay. This is conservative Christian, remember? <laughs> I feel a little bit better. Like about 18 that, years. So you've somehow survived five years without touching yourself. Right. Um, the chemicals of falling in love, she says, may compel uh, both the ma- male and female to put everything else aside as secondary. Their bodies invite them to love. But the cruel trick here is that while these feelings are deeply biological and fully existential, we aren't supposed to act on them. Bear this in mind. So you feel compelled at 18 or 19 to have this sexual relationship, and it may be a strong compulsion, and I think a lot of people can identify with that, or 17 or 16. Uh, But you're not really supposed to be involved in sex with this person because you're not married. Even though you're having these strong feelings with this other person, you're in a relationship, you're making out, you're sucking each other's faces off. She quotes Matt Chandler, who counsels young men plagued by lust and want God to take their desires away from them, uh, that they shouldn't ask God to remove their sexual need, but rather to steward it well and lead the man into the covenant relationship where sex can be enjoyed as God planned. Steward it well. Steward it well, my son. That's what I will be. I'm going to put put that over the door. (laughs) As my kids leave the house, (laughs) 
steward it well. Please do. And I will say it to them every time they pass underneath. Katie's going to love Everett, that. Everett, Corinne, <laughs> steward it well, my She's children. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> steward what? Ew, dad. Um, the desire. <laughs> so the desire is all-encompassing but should only be sated by marriage, and marriage is for adults, even though teenagers have the strongest hormonal impulses and the weakest impulse control. So what's an adult then to her? Uh, I mean, I guess 18 plus, okay. uh, old enough to marry. You can't get married until you're 18, really. Sure, but... And, I mean, 13... Uh, the, the, the literature says, uh, and I've probably <laughs> said this on the show before, okay. Yeah, but the research says that well, I think this is even like in the Guinness Book of World Records or I don't know, some weird sex records, but like 13-year-olds, 13-year-old boys are at their sexual peak in terms of being able to have the most number of orgasms in a, you know, sure. time period. And women are at their sexual peak around 18. Okay. So really, by the time you're 19, 20, which is even when these conservative, you know, whatever folks, Mormons are getting married, you're past your sexual peak. So the time when you were most tempted to sex biologically has long since passed for the man and yeah. is, is you're over the hill anyway for a woman. <laughs> Every, right, right. Everyone's over the hill. Yeah. Yeah. By 26, a man has fallen off the hill. <laughs> and then you die. <laughs> and then what? Yeah. I'm still here somehow. <laughs> Even made a couple kids. But uh, anyway, what are we talking about? So... <laughs> <laughs> God's God wants us to wait to have sex and do nothing to satisfy these intense 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 16-year-old impulses until we're married. This sounds to me a little bit cruel and kind of bizarre. Like why? Why would your God want that? Why would God I feel like want this is that? a theodicy. Yeah, it is. It's a little it's bit, yeah. Like I don't know what the lesson or, is in that. Or does God not want you? To... Yeah, God says, "All right, bam, you really want sex." Wait five years. Yeah. Why? Like, I don't know. So you can learn a lesson. The Bible curiously has pretty much nothing to say, by the way, on the subjects of pornography or masturbation. I'm leaving aside the story of Onan. Remember, do you know Onan spilled his seed rather than inseminate his sister-in-law? Uh, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, he, he spilled his seed, Onan. Onanism is a term for uh, this, for spilling your seed outside of your... Of a lady. Oh, yeah, that's weird. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but that's what that he did. Today. So he was supposed to inseminate <laughs> his sister-in-law. I think his brother probably died or something. And like, you know, the Bible says, Old Testament says you got to oh, okay, make okay, children okay. with your sister-in-law if your brother dies. Uh, <laughs> Love that one. But he spilled his seed, says the Bible, rather than put it in her. <laughs> Sir, <laughs> it's very romantic. I'm going to uh, use that. It had more to do with Onan, by the way, refusing to carry on his brother brother's line than anything sexual, uh, say most Bible scholars. Although this Old Testament story can serve as the justification for a variety of Christian sexual prohibitions. Besides, oh, yeah, that's okay. it. So this woman, when, when we say no masturbation, we're talking about this guy. And that one time he wouldn't get his sister-in-law pregnant. Goddamn. It, it, yeah. Onan, what's, what is it? Onan. Onan. A very Onan the Barbarian. It's a very complex <laughs> situation. It's not just like, you know, the Bible tells a story about a 12-year-old boy who, you know, was really horny one day and spilled his seed and then yeah, God was mad. Not an exact uh, No, it's not a one-to-one. -one. Comparison. There's yeah. weird, weird uh, extra factors in this story. 
Anyway, besides Onan, the closest the entire two-volume book comes to the subject of voyeurism or masturbation is in the fifth chapter of Matthew, the same exact chapter on which Bonson bases his call for Mosaic law in the contemporary world. This is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew quotes Jesus as saying, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay. You never, you know this. No, I know, you but it's just like. Bible school. Every time you hear it, I'm like. Oh. <laughs> it gets worse from there. You got to pluck out your eye and stuff. Going to hell then. This is. Right? This, I don't know. This is what one is of. eyeballs. We'll let Riley hash through that problem. This is one of several instances in the sermon in which Jesus takes a physical prohibition and turns it into a much more difficult, as Olivia's saying, psychological prohibition. But as I mentioned in my discussion on Bonson and the theocracy, uh, Matthew's version of the sermon is not uh, the most persuasive historical document. It's based on an earlier source, the Q source, that was also very likely used by Luke in writing his Sermon on the Plain. So same source turns into these two different Gospels. Hmm. Sermon on the Plain of Luke does not talk about adultery at all. Matthew dwells on punishment when Luke focuses on love. Whereas Matthew's Jesus exhorts his followers to pluck out their own eye rather than have their eye lead them into hell, Luke's Jesus tells his audience to love their enemies and do not judge and you will not be judged. Luke's Jesus is stopping by the free-loving hippie commune to turn some water into wine. And Matthew's Jesus is wagging a finger at the Puritans for not being pure enough. <laughs> Seems like two different Jesuses. If you ask your hot friend and his hot wife to have sex in your rumpus room while you watch... It's really pretty difficult to say outside of Matthew why that's such a bad thing, other than the fact that you have a rumpus room. And that's pretty significant. Sorry. And that's, Olivia brings that the punchiness in me. And that's pretty significant. Uh, so think about this. If we think about the length of the Bible, the Bible's preoccupation with very specific rules and the fact that the Bible writers weren't too shy to write often about sexual situations and prohibitions the fact that we've got to hang our entire argument against pornography and masturbation on one single line of Matthew, that's pretty thin stuff. You'd yeah. think it would come up more. Like, that's not like, you couldn't you couldn't have a school paper that was just that one, <laughs> yes. my one source is that one line. Is that line, one line, yeah. And I'm going to write 20 pages about it now. Couldn't do it. No. As far as premarital sex, the Bible is full of prohibitions against fornication read as sex between unmarried people which could involve all kinds of different partners, but it also contains acts of fornication by some of God's favorite people. Lot offered his daughters to a mob crowding around his house and had sex with them in a cave after God had turned his wife into a pillar of salt and his daughter daughters got him drunk. We all love that story, right? And that's the, as holy as it gets. In the Gospels, Jesus defended a woman accused of adultery, asking that he without sin cast the first stone to punish her. This isn't to suggest that adultery is cool, but rather that nobody's perfect. It's not exactly gouging out an eye to keep from eternal damnation. While my rumpus room scenario may seem like a weird way of working around the moral commandments of the Bible, that isn't in keeping with the spirit of the text. The spirit of the Gospels is perhaps best characterized by Jesus telling people to quit giving each other such a hard time because nobody's perfect except God. I don't, right? Yeah. I'd also suggest that watching someone have sex is not the same as wanting to have sex with them. Erotic novels, comics, and cartoons can raise sexual feelings, but they don't actually offer even a reasonable fantasy of an adulterous affair. 
the pleasure comes from the sexual nature of the media and not necessarily from a specific desire to have sex with the real or imagined bodies in question. But I digress. That's like saying fan fiction. That, that can't be a sin. Right. It's not, that can only be good for people. <laughs> Tumblr can't be <laughs> Tumblr can't one be big a sin. sin. Well, what used to be Tumblr. Yeah, rip. Well, I guess it's kind of still alive, but is it? Well, people fanfiction.net is where people go for fanfiction, oh, right? There you, is that I still know. alive? I, I, you tell me. That was back. Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> On a separate but related subject, Slattery says that since God has endowed us with our anatomy, we must rethink gender dysphoria. Okay, uh, we're here. Sl- we're doing this. Slattery laments that. Instead of recognizing gender confusion as a heart-wrenching distortion of God's design for male and female, our culture has begun celebrating gender fluidity, even encouraging children and teens to explore different gender identities. I want to say a few things on this, since it's perhaps the most sensitive topic Slattery discusses in terms of contemporary politics, although her comments on homosexuality aren't much more encouraging. She recognizes that she will be called a bigot for her opinions and embraces, because it's 2018, remember, and embraces uh, the fact that she is a cultural outsider, although she also hopes to win converts to her perspective, theoretically, from outside of Christianity as well within it, as within it. Jesus' followers were similarly persecuted, and so a good Christian embraces outsider scorn and covets being on the outside of a culture's good graces. Slattery's couple of paragraphs on transgender identity clearly reject surgery and other medical interventions to treat transgender people, and this makes her comments on gender fluidity and exploring gender identities kind of misleading. Certainly the entry of women into traditionally male careers or the movement to allow men to explore their emotions and serve a greater role in domestic responsibilities and childcare, these things wouldn't bother Slattery, although these are also examples of expanding and exploring gender roles. You see what I mean? She's saying we shouldn't be messing with gender identity. And yet, we have been, as a culture. And she's theoretically all right with it. Her line about gender fluidity speaks nicely to her underlying theme of postmodern excess, but here's the thing. It only makes sense as a reference to transgender medical interventions. After that, she's not asking that we go back to living like Lucy and Ricky Ricardo. This makes the line she's drawing feel kind of arbitrary, or at least like she's navigating a tricky gray space. But uh, this is exactly what Slattery started off claiming she wouldn't do. There are no gray spaces. So she's not against? She is against surgeries and this sort of thing. But she's not against gender fluidity and gender like i'm confused she couldn't possibly it sounded be like against... she was and then now i'm like is yeah, she it's not? 2018 she's got to be on board i'm just saying logically from like a gender has changed the way i yeah. perform my gender the way my role in the home sure i mean no one's going to say a father's involvement in his child's upbringing making him dinner and whatever is a bad thing but this is a big change in the way a male functions in the home if we're sure. thinking about my grandparents mm-hmm. um so i'm tell i'm just saying that she has said well you know gender we're we're being too fluid on gender okay so she is saying we are being too fluid right but i come on now what in what is she's just trying to say it as gently as she can for 2018 is that like i guess but she's i mean considering the way we've seen people called uh transphobic these days i think she's well aware that she falls into that bucket right she's happily walking into the bucket of transphobic okay yeah i just think it's kind of arbitrary the way she talks about it that's all she likes to throw around persecution yes a lot she likes to be persecuted she and welcomes it i 
Yeah. While you you think I, she's conducting some? Well, I have feelings about that because I'm like, I don't necessarily know that a lot of Christians can go around and be like, I am being persecuted for being a Christian because that's normally the flip is the Christians were the persecutors historically a lot of the time. Yeah. I, I mean, when we think about gender fluid people, we think about, I don't know, slut shaming and all this sort of stuff, which we're going to get into, by the way, momentarily. I feel like there's violence against women. There's violence against transgender people. It is a real thing. And that is real persecution to my mind. Yeah. It's tangible. I don't know that Christians experience this kind of threat of violence. I don't know. Homosexuals, right? Uh, yeah. Gay people. I I, rec- I, I, t- I took a training and I heard you're not supposed to say homosexuals anymore, by the way. So I'm trying to be careful. <laughs> I guess I really don't on it. throw out the word homosexual that often. It was that so kind that of works, day. But yeah, we we got to today. Uh, queer oh, isn't that the queer? The no, I don't know. If we're, I have no idea. I don't want to be gay. People is what I'm st- I'm hanging with. Well, I think at least when I took my uh, the feminism, queer was okay. What we're trying to say is we want to be sensitive uh, to our gay, lesbian, bi. Uh, transgender listeners. Yeah, I mean, let us know. Yeah, we're doing the best we can. Uh, we are we're actively trying to, to yeah. call appropriately. Yes. Uh, oh, that is our answering machine, though, Olivia. Let's uh, let's go ahead and answer that real quick. We'll take a break, uh, see who's who's calling us right now, and then we'll get back to a little bit more Christian sex ed. Who the fuck is calling us? <laughs> Dr. Rob, church secrets here. I think I might be the only person who leaves voice messages on your alchemical answering machine. Kids have got all their direct emails and word bots these days. Damn kids. So, you've been talking an awful lot about so-called Christians lately. They're called so, on the account of the fact that they have not yet adopted the one true theology of the Church of Chester, Congregation 35 and a half and growing. We say half because Maud McPherson has not fully accepted the infallibility of the gooseberry bush behind the church outhouse. Those gooseberries can make you prophesy the latest trends in denim and bestow waking dreams of the everlasting shrubbery on the believer. Denim, after all, is a sacred fabric of our people. I've been a member since I was 15, and it's a good thing. 33 and a half might not sound like a lot, but heaven's not a Costco, Dr. Rob. It's not a big discount warehouse full of cheddar pretzels and lawn furniture that anyone can join. It's more like a... Uh, the seating area at the DeVray's Ice Cream and Bait Shop with three tables full of sticky kids with waffle cone in one hand and a styrofoam cup full of bloodworms in the other. Yeah, that's what heaven is like. Probably. You know, I can't help but wonder if I'm running the Rival Conspiracy podcast to keep referencing in your opening bit. Except that I have almost 4,000 one-star reviews, which amounts to far more stars than your shows collected according to the immutable law of addition. And uh, you, and uh, so you couldn't even begin to imagine catching up. Anywho, I am not a conspiracy podcast. I provide religious instruction and popular commentary on issues of the day, like recipes for jam and bush maintenance. Till next time. Moving on from slattery but remaining with the conservative side of Christian sexual ethics, Heather Tyneman writes a fairly by-the-numbers defense of keeping your body parts covered up in What's Up With The Fig Leaves, colon, The Principles and Purposes of Modesty Uncovered. Cover your colon. Tyneman. That's the best title so far. What's Up With The Fig Leaves? 
Tineman, who likes nautical metaphors, runs aground in more or less the same way Slattery does and for similar reasons, but she focuses on the heterosexual female as the root cause and best possible remedy for the sin of lust. It's all on you, Olivia. Here we go. It always is. She begins, as so many have before her, with Adam and Eve. When they ate the forbidden fruit and lost their innocence, they covered their bits with fig leaves. Then God came along and gave them robes made of skins because fig leaves weren't enough. But Tineman seems to know that the Eden story is almost never read literally today, despite how badly she wants to read it literally. And so it's difficult to read into this God's endorsement of more layers of clothing. She warns that being modest doesn't mean we are actually modest unless we clothe ourselves in Christ's righteousness. Shame means we're actually modest uh, unless we clothe... Oh, shame, she says, at being publicly naked is a picture of the shame we should feel at being spiritually naked before God and our need to be clothed in the righteousness of another. God, she says later, was teaching Adam and Eve that they should not make themselves holy. By providing them with clothes of skin, he was teaching them and us to look to him for righteousness. Clothe yourself in God. Since this is the first chapter, you'd imagine that she's about to write about clothing as a metaphor for an underlying spiritual principle. If modesty is a metaphor, then it shouldn't matter what we wear as long as we humble ourselves before God and accept Christ as the only spiritual and earthly truth, but... It still matters a whole lot what we wear. A whole, whole lot. Yeah. Time for those fig leaves. The act of showing your body, generally your female body in Tyneman's world, and seeing the body, generally with your male eyes, is sinful. See Matthew once more. She says, A woman has a God-given desire to share her beauty with a man. It is modest convictions that cause her to hold out, to share it in the right time with the right man. <laughs> easy there let me finish the quote instead of accepting the more immediate but ultimately fulfilling and destructive pleasure of showing it off now to any man who has eyes to leer all right olivia just needed to laugh a little i <clears throat> it's you just save it for okay. the right time okay all right. You want so you want more. Okay. Yep. So if you want someone to find you attractive, it should be your husband in your marriage bed. But what if you're single? Tyneman's got an answer for you as well. If you're single, you should feel lucky that you're not trying to attract a man and enjoy make yourself making yourself beautiful for God. You have only one person to please, the Lord, she says. The Lord should be the object of your pursuit of beauty. Now, the logic here warps in much the same way it does with slattery, echoing Plato Tineman says that love of Christ is like a diamond ring, and marriage between humans is like a photograph of a diamond. It's much better to have that ring, so you should quit complaining about wanting photos. Single girls. Christ's love, in other words, is much better than the warm embrace of a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Since romantic and sexual love are a pale reflection of the spiritual love of God, single people who can't find a partner should count themselves fortunate. More time for God. The woman who wants to attract a man should forget about sex and enjoy that God time. It's almost as if Tineman is writing in the 3rd century. She sounds more like Tertullian than a 21st century Christian to me. But again, this is a 21st century Christian book. By a woman. Well, well, yeah, what? You hear that, single ladies? Oh, you single ladies, enjoy it. For God. Yes. Don't, don't enjoy it too much. 
I will say, though, yet again, this isn't entirely coherent within Tynemann's own text, because she also says that Adam was not complete and good in himself, even when perfect. He was complete and good with Eve. What was true of Adam and Eve has been true of man and woman ever since. Follow me here. God made woman and man to join together and complete each other. This is not only Tynemann's argument, but a widely articulated sentiment across the religion. And so, the single woman seeking a mate poses a fundamental challenge to Tynemann's view uh, of theology. Men, she says, in one of a slew of gender stereotypes that typify the book, are visual people, which is why women should be modest in dress. A woman's body is part of how she attracts a man to such a union and is a central part of how the man enjoys her during that union exclusively with the curtains drawn, of course. But that body must be concealed at all times, except for those times. The single female is trapped, then, by a tautological ethic that loops back on itself. God's plan is for men and women to marry, and God has programmed men to be visually stimulated by women, but God also wants women to cover up their bodies so that they don't draw the sexual attention of men. What? And that's why every woman... Like, if you want to dress modestly for god that's your right that's your choice mm -hmm. but like it shouldn't be anyone else telling you to do it here we have a complex moral and gray area i know and then we can get into so much political shit oh but... yeah, yeah, yeah 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 but let's get back to some gender stereotypes um i've tried to confine my analysis as much as possible to the internal contradictions in these pop theologians arguments but tyneman makes some claims that require a consult from the experts on the good old interwebs while it's generally accepted that men are more visually stim stimulated, Tynemann also bases her case for modesty on the notion that men normally have higher sex drives than women and are quicker to arouse than their female counterparts. This is why you got to cover up, Olivia. True. A British study, though, from 2009, published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, found that men on average self-reported having a higher sex drive and that women, listen to this, showed higher variability in the way they characterized their sex drives. This study included 200,000 participants in 53 countries. While I suspect common cultural taboos about women's sex drives may have altered the way women talked about their desires, the results themselves suggest that many women have stronger sex drives than the average man because of the high variability. More men hew to the mean, whereas women chart all the way up and all the way down the spectrum. This means a large number of women are more sexually driven than men. As for arousal, a study of 21-year-old college students at McGill University in Montreal uh, used thermal imagery, imagery uh, to track the heat in the men's and the women's genitals. Imagining signing up for this, this study. All 21-year-olds. Both men and women reached peak heat between 11 and 12 minutes into viewing sexually explicit videos. Men were only slightly quicker to heat up, and so and they were so slightly... Uh, quicker that the difference was deemed statistically insignificant huh yeah that's pretty crazy we heat up at the same rate <laughs> we all heat up at the same right. rate we're all at the just, end of the day yeah regular people um men's greater sex drive and time to arousal are pretty essential to Tynemann's argument that women are responsible for covering themselves up to prevent us men from lusting after you mm. women bear the burden except that studies suggest women don't bear the burden Neither their sex drives nor their propensity to become aroused suggest that they should be the passive receivers of men's attention and gatekeepers for men's sexual feelings. Women are just li as likely as men to get aroused at the sight of a human that they are attracted to. 
Steinemann argues that modesty prevents men from becoming desensitized to the sight of a woman's body, thereby ruining or diminishing the sexual experience. <sighs> While it is generally accepted that addictive exposure to pornographic images can warp or reduce interest in actual sex, I'm fine with that. We have to keep focused on Tineman's concern. Women exposing their bodies to attract men's gaze. There is a wide gulf between regular exposure to hardcore pornography and seeing attractive women's midriffs or legs. Or even in a bikini. Doctors, for example, see naked people all the time, but don't report being desensitized. And even if a mild desensitization sets in, this is generally to the heterosexual man's advantage. While men and women are equally quick to arousal, which is something we all learned today, women are capable of more orgasms, which means a man generally should put his arousal or satisfaction second chronologically. You heard it here. Right? We're going to get merch that says that. And put that over my other door. <laughs> the back door, if you will. The back door, yes. A man, ooh, a man who, in time and universe, has been desensitized by seeing too many bodies in bikinis on the beach or butts in yoga pants on the street is actually going to be a better lover. Wow. Right? See, we're doing you a favor, men. Put on those yoga pants. By wearing less and less in public. Yes, do your thing. <laughs> My shoulders are going to help you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Make you a better man. Heterosexual man. To conclude on the subject of modesty, let's for just one second spare a thought for the foot fetish. The foot fetish is one of the most common of the fetishes, and some estimates hold that roughly half the population has one. Did not. Ex yes, let's you learn just, this like, today. Suddenly took a left turn into <laughs> foot fetish. Uh, Tineman says nothing about sandals. The preferred footwear of Jesus, by the way. Oh, that's interesting. And the apostles. She might argue that a woman puts on a halter top because it makes her feel sexy and she wants to draw men's attention, which is bad. But she doesn't put on flip flops for the same reason, does she? <laughs> If she has a boyfriend who she knows has a, has a fetish, maybe she'll think of it. Um, or it, it might be on her mind when she chooses to wear flip-flops as one of the many reasons she selects them for the way. <laughs> Today, they're easy to slip on and off. Maybe she's out of socks. Maybe she's planning a foot massage. Uh, maybe she's also aware her boyfriend likes feet. The point is, it's rare outside of a night at the discotheque that a woman chooses what she wears purely to arouse a man. Or anyone. A halter top, a bikini, or a fig leaf all have their purposes outside of displaying the body. Tineman. Choosing to look attractive or to find someone else attractive is not in itself a sin. I can't say that enough. Uh, that the one line in Matthew makes us wonder whether it's alright for a married woman or married man to dress to attract notice or gaze at another. Uh, but it's just one line. God has naturally endowed us with a sexual bearing toward each other. We naturally find other people sexually attractive, and we would regardless of how they are dressed. In the Victorian age, when bodies were more modestly covered, collarbones and ankles, necks and fingers became objects of sexual attention. Remember all those weirdos in the Victorian period. God love them. In short, we cannot police our feelings. We should not police each other's choice to dress as we please, but we can make ethical and spiritual choices about how we respond to our feelings. In the first book of Samuel... King David has sex with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his soldiers, Uriah. And you know this story? Bathsheba on the roof? Sounds kind of familiar. When Bathsheba discovers she is pregnant, David prevents Uriah from going to see her and instructs his men to put Uriah on the front lines of a battle in order to get him oh, killed. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This angered God. David had many wives and Uriah had only one. David was rich and powerful. Uriah was a lowly military man. 
God's prophet Nathan came to inform David of God's displeasure. If a rich man had many sheep and a poor man had one and the rich man killed the poor man's one sheep to feed his guest, how would you feel? I'd feel really angry. That rich man is a big jerk because he had all those sheep and he took that poor man's one and only sheep and that poor man will probably starve to death. That's how God feels about you right now. <gasps> while David had sin, uh, while David's sin had a sexual component, it was his greed and ingratitude to God for what God had given him that inspired Yahweh's wrath. Bathsheba, for her part, was just taking a bath. Which is in her name. Weird. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and few commentators blame her or believe that Samuel intended to blame her uh, for the events of his story. David married Bathsheba and God took the child David fathered by Bathsheba in punishment. But God didn't stay mad. God gave David another son, Solomon, who would go on to eventually succeed him. Our nature will often lead us astray, but if we recognize our imperfection and humble ourselves before God, there is always a way forward spiritually. This, by the way, is the general attitude of more liberal commentators. Typified, perhaps, by Chicago pastor Bromley McClenahan in her book, Good Christian Sex. She not only relaxes, but in some cases removes strictures imposed by her more conservative co-religionists. On masturbation, she questions any doctrine that tells teenagers that their natural impulses are wrong. Ethically, pursuing pleasure for yourself takes nothing away from anyone else. She says, we can honor God and honor our bodies by attending to our desires with care. We can help our future partners by figuring out who we are and what we like and long for. So masturbation's back on the menu, and so is premarital sex. McClanahan is not only cool with premarital sex, she's had it, and with several partners, Olivia. Oh my god, and she admitted it? Yeah, because <laughs> she wrote a book and told us all about Holy it. Holy shit. Why would I know? I don't uh, know, maybe <laughs> We shared a dorm room. Um, <laughs> sex is wrong, she says. When both partners are not being honest about their motives, good Christian premarital sex from her standpoint must happen in the context of a loving and supportive and respectful relationship. Sexual sin, she says, is less about particular acts or the way they're carried out than the way the partners treat each other. Moral sex involves checking in with your partner's needs, their hopes, their desires, and your own motives. She characterizes modesty as a tool used by fundamentalists for social control. Ooh. Generally over women's bodies. Ooh. <laughs> it's fair to express ourselves sexually as long as we're being good to each other. Her ethics are fairly permissive, but McClenahan also encourages marriage. If we're going to share our bodies with someone and or make new bodies, babies, we should feel safe to share ourselves freely without shame. The promise of commitment and permanence in marriage helps to render that relationship safe. I mean, there's some good Christian ideology there. Yeah. Not so scary, but we get it. While she doesn't specifically speak about pornography, she defines lust as sinful because it devalues others as individuals. Lust isn't really concerned with the particulars or another about his body or her interest or consent. Leaving aside the ethical way of choosing and viewing pornography, this certainly is no endorsement for the moral, uh, for the more exploitative segments of the industry. And as for homosexuality, she makes passing reference to the utter normativity of heterosexual intercourse in her critique of Christianity's focus, by the way, on vaginal intercourse, uh, which leaves plenty of room for unregulated oral and anal intercourse. But she does not offer anything like a full-throated defense of homosexual unions. It may be that we're meant to read McClenahan's comments about sex as inclusive of homosexual pairings, but given the hostility of her conservative counterparts, she could use to be more obvious on this point if she means to defend the viability of homosexual love as a Christian pursuit. 
Her liberalism is based on a reading of the Bible that insists we take its teaching seriously, but acknowledges it's the work of human authors who did some interpreting on behalf of the Almighty. And this introduces a strain of relativism that is the bane of Slattery's existence and would severely diminish the strength of Tynaman's argument. It also raises the question of who exactly McClenahan's book is for. Slattery seems to think that most Christians prefer Western cultural permissiveness around sex and spends most of her time trying to talk them out of it. McClenahan's ethics and life story are so anathema to the conservative and modest Christian that I doubt she would make a dent in their perspective. She doesn't engage, uh, is what I'm saying, with them at their own game. She's not interested in the kinds of arguments about the meaning of biblical phrases or stories or the internal logic of her own perspective. McClenahan feels like she's writing for the single liberal Christian, navigating between guilt and shamelessness in our postmodern landscape. This is certainly a noble cause, but it, in my opinion, it doesn't do much to aid dialogue within the wider community of Christians. In fact, it doesn't appear that either side is very interested in exchanging ideas. Tynaman imagines the audience for her modesty manual to be parents, pastors, and women in mentoring role, with mentoring roles in mind, like Olivia. <laughs> People who already <laughs> buy her argument... Uh, but could use better language to articulate it to young adult women. Slattery imagines outsiders calling her a bigot, but assumes that her readers won't feel that way when she speaks plainly on gender identity and homosexuality. And this is my greatest worry uh, for the state of Christian sex education. If we take offense at the conservative perspective, it shows no signs of changing in light of the liberal perspective. In fact, it is happy to reject it outright. And the liberal perspective shows little interest in converting more conservative believers to a more open ideology. For that matter... The liberal's perspective isn't especially interested in learning from the conservative side of the debate. As with so many aspects of modern culture, there's a powerful divide, politically and philosophically, and no indication of any bridges being built between the factions. Such is the state of Christian sex education, at least from a part one standpoint. Olivia, final thoughts? Honestly, I was just thinking about how even in high school, in like our health class, when we talk about sex, they would preach abstinence. Mm-hmm. Like even in my normal public ass, high school, public high school in 2013. Well, before that, but like they would come in and they would like be showing you this is how you use a condom, but also don't have Just sex. Just don't do it. <laughs> which was always like <laughs> very like, well, that's confusing. But so I feel like it's like almost. It's like surpassed. It's just like almost become a societal thing instead of a religious thing. Yeah, a little I hear bit. that. Yeah, and certain like, parts I don't, of the world. I mean, sure. My areas, the high school was like kind of religious, but it's not like it's a conservative part of the state. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, it's a broad conservatism. True. I hear that answering machine again. Oh yeah, yeah. Who keeps calling us? Doctor Rob, I have a confession to make. Occult or otherwise. Last time I called, I said I had been a member of the Church of Chester since I was 15 years old. But the truth is, I backslid for a brief period from the time I was 23 and three quarters to the time I turned 25. I guess that wasn't a brief period so much as a period longer than a year. But it was my rumspringer. At least, that's how the pastor characterized it, and he's read all of the secret tablets of Chester. I've only read half. Maybe less. Slightly less. I have another confession to make. I have never read any of the secret tablets of Chester. But I believe! I truly believe the pastor has. I have always believed, except for that year and a quarter when I was backsliding and competing on the professional conga circuit, 
Uh, uh, that, and then one day after July 4th when I, I burned my nipple with a Roman candle. I am a loyal member of the Church of Chester. I wear denim and sell assorted jams at the neighborhood farmer's market and pass around copies of the Light of Chester graphic novel to people who really don't want to hear it. This is Church Secrets. You probably guessed it was me by now, so that's my confession. I hereby adjourn and declare close the meeting. Oh my god, what the f- Okay, hold on. I'll do it with you. I got it. I can do it. I just need to remember it for a <laughs> second. Reason, reason. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of this secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. Oh my god. We want to thank Evangeline Olson, Malik Hopkins, and Neil Sigmund for voicing uh, on this these this set of episodes uh, and uh, also Church Secrets for checking in. Uh, Olivia Literal, our Grandmaster of the Order, thank you for being with me today. Here we are in the closet. Me, my name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson. I will see catch you next time. Speak to you next time uh, with Riley Claxton Hernandez on Christian Woo. Sex Ed, part two. Bye.